Always love the close of the Lord's Day. It's so fitting to be together and singing and encouraging one another for the week. Coming out of this past week and being encouraged with God's people and then preparing our hearts for this next week. Take your Bibles, if you would, and look with me at Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, where we are studying the seven letters to the seven churches, and we're on this final letter. And you remember last time when we looked at this, we just really opened it up to the, the way that the Lord Jesus, the head of the church, describes himself. We're, of course, speaking about the message that was given to the church at Laodicea. Follow along as I read this letter. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I'm rich, and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may become rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and I salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him, and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We asked the question last time, would Christ be attracted to your church? That's a question that I always want to be asking myself about the ministry that we have here and where I serve. Would Christ be attracted to the ministry of Grace Emanuel Bible Church? Is this a ministry that seeks to exalt whatever he loves so that he is thrilled with what goes on here so that he is wanting to come alongside and minister his grace through his people here? Is this the kind of place that draws the work of the Lord and causes it to flourish? Laodicea is the last of the churches to which the Lord wrote in this final revelation, this prophecy, as I said to you, this was a city that had uh, been known for the elevation of reasoning in, in terms of the political climate. It was a democracy. That's essentially where its name came from. The rule of the people was the culture and the DNA of Laodicea. As I told you last time, it was a very wealthy place. It had sophistication in terms of its intellectual culture. It was self-sufficient, as we'll see. They had, as a culture, become quite complacent given their financial wealth. A school of medicine resided there, so they were, of course, the toast of many cities when people would send their 
younger generations to be educated. It's quite a place. And yet the Lord writes to them to open their eyes, to wake them up. This is shock treatment because this is a place that professes to be God's people and yet it's the church that makes Christ gag. It is the worst of the seven letters in terms of its condemnation and its rebuke. It is the worst condition a church can be in, as we'll see in a moment. And so as all the letters, the Lord opens up giving himself title, proclaiming who he is to the church in reference to what he's about to write. And we saw that in verse 14. These things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. The amen spoke about the absolute certainty of Christ. He is precise. He is certain. What he says is true. He is the amen, the final word, the so be it, the may it be written, may it be established. That is who he is personified. Whatever he says to his church is right. Whatever he gives to the revelation of his people, it is true. It is certain. This is why I love the search for uh, the authorial intent of a passage of Scripture. This is why I love to study God's Word in an expositional way. I love to dig down and find out what the author intended to say because now I know because of the inspiration of the Spirit of God, we are being precise, as precise as the Lord himself wanted to be in revealing his truth to his people. The idea that we're going to invite skeptics into the church and exalts uncertainty and then call it humility, we're not going to do that. You might be interested to note that this next February's Ecclesia and Courageous Churchmen will be all about this issue of the clarity and precision of Scripture, therefore its authority, its divine nature, and its inerrancy, its infallibility. We want to put our own stake in the ground as to where we stand, because the Lord of the church is the amen. And he wanted to open up to Laodicea that Whatever they may say about themselves, if you do not follow the certainty and the precision of Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church, you have missed the mark. And then he speaks of his veracity, not just his absolute certainty, but we saw last time his veracity. He is the faithful and true witness. No one revealed God like Jesus Christ. He was, as John 1.18 says, the full exegesis of the Father. He is the explanation of the Father. No one's seen God at any time, but the Son, the only begotten Son of God, he explains him. And he does it faithfully, and he passed on exactly what the Father wanted him to pass on. And he did it completely, comprehensively, so his people would have everything they need pertaining to life and godliness. A faithful witness. Therefore, any church that names the name of Christ who is unfaithful to the witness that Christ passed on, it doesn't matter what they say about themselves, they have missed the mark. They've missed the mark. We want to be a faithful and true witness because the Lord of his church is a faithful and true witness. He has veracity. It is true and it is full and it is comprehensive and there's nothing left out and everything said is truthful. There are no lies. There are no deceptions. There, there is no lack of clarity on all things that matter in the universe. And then he says of himself that he's preeminent in the church. He's the beginning of the creation of God. That is not to say, as cults have demanded, that that's a reference somehow to Christ being a created being, it is really a term that means he is preeminent. He is first. He has first place. 
ultimate place. He's Lord, Master. He's ultimate. He's the beginning, the preeminent one. He is the Redeemer, behind which will come a sea of redeemed people to worship Him as the God-man, our Savior. And so he opens this letter by telling the church at Laodicea that whatever they say about themselves, whatever they think about themselves, it only matters what the Lord of the church says. And what we're going to see about this letter and why it is so devastating is because it is pointing to one specific problem that completely decimates effective ministry. That problem is this. It is the disaster of spiritual mediocrity. It is the disaster of spiritual mediocrity. Notice what he says to them in verse 15. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. And I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. The first thing I want to note here is that their true condition is not hidden. We've seen this now in three of the other letters. This will be the fourth one. I know your deeds. You see it all through these letters. Jesus Christ, the Lord of his church, knows their deeds, so he knows their true condition. It's not hidden. Again, I want to reiterate it over and over as this prophecy reiterates it over and over in these letters. It is a relentless theme. The church cannot hide from what Jesus says about it. He knows us. He knows what goes on in the hallowed halls of Grace Emmanuel Bible Church. He knows every motive. He knows every work of ministry, every phony life. He knows every false teaching in some dark corner. He knows every genuine, faithful servant who's serving, maybe thanklessly. He knows it. And he knows the leadership. He knows the elders through and through. And usually when this particular word for knowledge is used in reference to human beings, it means that we learn by observation over time. That is not particularly its emphasis here. Its emphasis here is that it is a comprehensive knowledge by omniscience. This is divine knowledge. This is Hebrews 4.13. Everything is open and laid bare before him with whom we have to do, or in other words, to whom we must answer. Everything. My motives as one who teaches and shepherds and serves the church that way. Your motives in whatever ministry you serve in. Your motives in that discipleship relationship. Your motives in coming here. Are you all about yourself? Are you all about using people, manipulating people while you're pretending to worship Are you all about your selfish interests while your lips mouth the words of your favorite tunes? He knows it all. And you who are behind the scenes who think that he does not know and does not see how much trouble comes to you because you put your hand to the plow, roll up your sleeves, and people mistreat you, he knows. And he marks it down and he watches because he has an omniscient comprehension. Every factor is considered. Furthermore, this condition of the church is not hidden because it is spiritually appraised. That is to say, whatever the Lord sees in his church, he appraises it spiritually and he draws divine conclusions. It's always a divine conclusion that he draws about what he sees. That means it's wise. It is divinely wise. It is a perfect conclusion 
as to what he sees in the church. So whatever instruction he gives will be based upon a right diagnosis. He has comprehensive knowledge of what goes on in the church, and his appraisal of all of it is a right diagnosis through and through. So every factor is considered by the Lord Jesus, and every conclusion is divine. Moreover, when he does then bring down the verdict, it is always just, always. Whatever he brings into the life of the church to chasten us, whatever he does to chasten those whom he loves, it is always a just chastening. It is always tailor-made for exactly what we need. Every verdict he renders is righteous. Psalm 51.4, David proclaimed it when he was in sin and would reap the 30-year consequences or more of his sin against the nation and against Uriah, and against Bathsheba. When he admitted it in Psalm 51, he said, you are just when you judge. Whatever you have to do to cleanse me, you're just when you bring down the consequences. So not only is every factor considered, every conclusion divine, but every verdict is righteous. And therefore, every reproof and correction is appropriate. So every punishment is perfect, every correction, every reproof is holy and utterly appropriate. And it will be that way even in the end when judgment comes. You know, people believe that somehow God has been unfair in allowing evil to run its course. Don't you believe it? John 5 verse 30, all judgment's been given to the Son and His judgment is just. When the time comes for Him to bring the divine universe gavel down upon the judgment seat, It will be just, it will be righteous, there will be no questions, human beings will be silenced, no evil that has befallen anyone or Satan running his course will ever leave a question unanswered as to the righteousness and justice of God. He will make all things right. Listen, beloved, when he looks at a church, whatever he sees... And whatever he does to reprove that church and that ministry is right and just. It is every factor considered, every conclusion divine, every verdict righteous, and every punishment perfect. That's humbling, isn't it, about our own church, about your own ministry? You think you sit here and at times you just can get away with this or that. No, no. You think you're left behind and people uh, allow you to just serve to the bone and it's thankless? No. He knows. I know your deeds. Piercing words. So their true condition is not hidden. But secondly, he now points out something about their ministry. And we'll just say it if you're keeping an outline. Their ministry was spiritually bland. Their ministry was spiritually bland. Notice, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. And I wish that you were cold or hot. So the first thing we note here is that there is neither fervency nor hostility when it comes to the truth. The hot, the word for hot here is just the, it's the normal word for to, to boil to not just simmer, but to actually explosively boil. The idea is devotion that is fervent. That's why it's often translated fervency. We don't really find use of that word too much, but that's how it's used in the New Testament. It's this word, zeo. It, It means to boil over. This church never 
boiled in their devotion to Christ. They weren't ever fervent in it. You know, Romans 12, 11 says you're not to lag behind in your diligence, but to be fervent in spirit serving the Lord. Boiling in it, white hot, ready to go, passionate. What does it mean practically for this church that they weren't ever boiling in, in <clears throat> excuse me, their devotion to Christ? Well, first of all, it means they never took a strong definitive stand for anything that their church claims to stand for. Whatever was on their doctrinal statement, whatever was in their creed, whatever they were known for in the Laodicean community, they never took a strong definitive stand for any of those things. They were merely claims, but this was a church that never got white hot about anything definitive. And that meant that they also were never a catalyst for spiritual growth in others. They were, never, uh, they were never concerned enough to come alongside somebody and get serious by helping them get serious about their Christian life. Which means they never confronted sin as it needed to be lovingly confronted. But he also says you're, you're not only never boiling in your devotion to Christ, but you are also never cold. It's an interesting word, hard to, hard to translate. But essentially, it means that they never expressed being offended at the truth or the gospel. There wasn't enough truth being definitively preached. There wasn't enough serious Christianity going on to make someone get upset. They never expressed being offended at the truth. They never fervently, passionately honored Christ, nor were they ever serious enough to be antagonistic to the truth. They didn't feel any conviction of any kind enough to be offended at what was spoken. If somebody got up and spoke a hard truth or preached a hard truth, they treated it as though it was soft or unimportant or, as we'll see, they simply, some of them, considered themselves above it. Now, that's not me. In other words, no one in Laodicea ever got an upset at someone with the truth because they themselves are never upset by the truth. So Jesus says, you don't, you don't have any passionate devotion that would make you definitive and carry on effective ministry, and you don't even have enough people in your church that are offended at the truth so as, so as to prove that you can actually be definitive about the truth. You're not speaking it definitive enough for anybody to get upset about it or passionately carry it out. History records, by the way, that it's likely that Jesus is using the hot, cold metaphor as as it relates to how the water supply in Laodicea worked. You remember I told you that Hierapolis had all the hot water and, they, and, and Laodicea had to get their water from that location. It was a fortress kind of an area and virtually impregnable militarily, but, but they had the vulnerability that they had to get their water from somewhere else. Hierapolis had all the hot and, and they used it as such. It was more clean resource for medicine and things like that. They passed it down to Laodicea, and then south of there was Colossae, and Colossae had the fresh water and the cold water. It may very well be, history says, that Jesus was using a metaphor to indicate that there in Laodicea, the water was neither. 
it wasn't useful and, and for, for medicine, and it wasn't cool and refreshing and useful for drinking. You were right in the middle, and the water, when it came through Laodicea, was mostly tepid, stagnant, prone to bacterial problems. It may very well be that that's true, that Jesus was using an illustration they would have been familiar with. So there you have no fervency, no hostility. And Jesus wants to send a message to them about that very issue. The message is this. Blatant, when it comes to the truth, is better than bland. To be blatant when it comes to the truth is better than bland. Notice what Jesus says. I wish that you were cold or hot. That is very interesting language from the Lord. Very interesting. Because some have said, what do you mean? Why would Jesus wish or strongly desire for a church to be cold? He doesn't want a church to be cold. The term, by the way, here for wish is the term for a strong desire. Jesus has a strong desire for a response to the truth, listen, that recognizes it as truth. Either way. You either love it or you hate it, but it's truth enough to draw a line in the sand and polarize your response. The Lord did not wish that people would be cold to the truth. He hates unbelief. But what he desires is for the truth to be fully truth, clear truth, definitive truth, as to polarize the human heart and compel a decision. You know why we have such ineffective gospel ministry today is because pulpits and discipleship and books. They just dumb all this down, soften all this stuff. It, they become tepid in their approach to truth, and no one really has a line drawn in the sand at all. I mean, so who cares? What does that matter? You, you know, you, you say these big things in your doctrinal statement, but you know, when I go to your church, you're no different than my little club that I go to. It's really nice. Thank you. You know, when you preach, it's no different than the speech my University professor gives me. It's no different when I go to your church than the entertainment I get uh, satisfied with in the, in the rank and file evening that I have during the week. It's no different. Thank you very much. No, what Jesus desires is polarization. Jesus desires for you to speak the truth such that an actual work of dividing can happen. Some, you have to deal with it. You have to be compelled to face it. That's what he wants. But instead, when a church is spiritual vanilla, then it becomes quite comfortable with its feet always firmly planted in midair somewhere. When a church becomes like that, everything necessary for powerful outreach and dynamic ministry just shuts down. It shuts down. If a ministry becomes so tepid, so neutral, so vanilla, neither hot nor cold, lines aren't drawn in the proverbial sand, spiritual messages aren't compelling. When that happens, everything necessary for a powerful outreach to the community, everything necessary for a dynamic ministry life where people actually grow, all that just shuts down. That's why Jesus hates it. He can't use it. 
Look at Matthew chapter 5 for a moment. Keep your finger there in Revelation. You'll, you'll know this text because when Jesus was preaching, you remember that he made some very strong statements about those who wanted to follow him. Matthew 5 verse 13, you're the salt of the earth. You, you who know Christ, you who want to follow God and want to believe in the Messiah, you who are those who are a part of the kingdom, the kingdom citizens, you are the salt of the earth. What was salt? Salt was a preservative. Salt keeps things from rotting. And that's the whole point. You're, you're the salt of the earth. It's not so much the flavor that makes life savory. That's not the point. The point is it was a preservative. It kept things from putrefying, from rotting. That's what you are if you're a kingdom citizen. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's not good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. I mean, they use it in the road. It's just something to, to you know, go to the soil and make the soil a little more gritty or whatever, it, whatever properties it had left to dump into the soil. It was nothing. It was useless for preservation of what was important. And you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. It gives light to all who are in the house. There it is. You let your light shine before men in such a way that they can see. Laodicea was neither hot and fervent for Christ, clear with the truth, nor did they give enough truth that anyone in the church was upset about it? They were salt that had become tasteless, worthy of being trampled underfoot by men. They were a light that had become hidden. It wasn't giving anyone any help. So, back to Revelation. Jesus says, you're neither cold nor hot, and I wish that you were cold or hot. Christ hates lukewarmness, we'll call it, because it makes a church completely ineffective. All ministry shuts down. Not merely because the truth isn't proclaimed, but because the people themselves eventually will also shut down. And so what is the Lord's response? Blatant is better than bland. I want a church that's blatant. I want a church that's clear. I want a ministry that says the truth, speaks the truth. They have conviction. They say it definitively. So what? People get upset. It's not that you want to be personally belligerent, but you want to be clear. And when the truth is clear, it falls upon hearts that either do not want to receive it or want to receive it. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. We just give the, the light of the truth. We just let the sun shine. The whole idea in pragmatism that you were going to soft-pedal the truth and attract hearts that are already suppressing it was the gravest error. And evangelicalism was warned about pragmatism 40, 50 years ago when it came to the forefront and the seeker church was born and the seeker-sensitive services were born. You know what happened? We assumed that everyone who came in was a genuine seeker of God. 
That's not true. When you draw a line in the sand with the truth, sometimes you have people fervent and hot for the truth, and other people are antagonistic to it and hostile. They're cold to it. Jesus loves a kind of ministry where the truth can actually be a clear line drawn in the sand. Pragmatism tried to do away with all that. Why? Because we assumed people were genuine seekers, and what did we do? We sent out surveys, and we said, hey, what would you like in a church? I remember reading one particular survey of a youth ministry in Chicago. This is back before the Willow Creek organization did their whole, whatever, you know, dance show in their morning services. This is before the seeker service was born. All you young people were in kindergarten when this was going on. I'm telling you, they sent out surveys to the, to the young people in downtown Chicago and said, what do you want in a church? It was, it was um, amazing the, that the leaders of that survey would even listen to such things, but the surveys came back fairly consistent. We want the music that we like, so we want a concert environment. We want free food. Hello. <laughs> free food. I didn't mind that one. We want a speaker that's funny yet knowledgeable. That was it. It's exactly how it was phrased. Funny yet knowledgeable and lots of games and entertainment. And you know what? That leadership team of that ministry gave them exactly what they wanted and the population exploded. And thus was born the seeker movement. The seeker movement was born. It had some seedbed earlier on. The young disciple who actually took, did that survey and built that youth ministry was discipled by Robert Schuler, who did the same thing 20 years earlier when he bought a drive-in theater in San Dimas, California, because he thought, well, if people are going to go to the movies, I'm going to bring church to them. And so they drove up, and some of you young people don't even know what a drive-in theater is, but anyway, we used to drive up, and we'd put a speaker in the window. If you could call it a speaker, it was more like, you know, I mean, I don't even want to tell you. You could barely hear the thing. But they put a speaker in the window, he served them popcorn, and he gave them a little 20-minute ditty. And you could go to church, that's how you went. You drove in, put the speaker in your window, you didn't have to talk to anybody, it's just family, I and mean, you're even arguing about who gets the popcorn, you listen to the 20-minute ditty, you go away, you, you are now churched. And he discipled Bill Hybels, who did the whole Willow Creek movement out of that youth ministry in Chicago, and thus... The Willow Creek Church was born and seeker services were born. Listen, the Lord Jesus Christ cannot stand it when you will not be definitive because you are trying to otherwise attract people you assume are seekers. Just speak the truth and let God draw the lines in the sand. Pragmatism said we, we are not going to do that. I went to one church I was supposed to speak that morning, and I'd never been to that church, and I came in, and the pastor and I were talking, and, and I noticed that the church was, had just been renovated, and it, it, looked like a, it looked like they had tried to create some sort of venue that was, that was for evening concerts. And I said to him, well, how's the ministry going? And he said, oh, it's been great. We, we, we got rid of uh, everything that had any vestige of, of what might embarrass an unbeliever, an, an unchurched person. And so he said, we got rid of hymn, hymnals. We got rid of all that old music. We got rid of any pew Bible because they don't know how to find their way through the Bible. We just want to put it up on the screen. That's all we're going to do. We got rid of uh, the podium that we would normally have, and, and we, we just... Gave them exactly what would attract them here. And you know what? Lo and behold, the place filled up. 
And I'm thinking the whole time, you're in trouble if I'm about to preach. Because <laughs> I'm not going to go that direction. And it was wild, you know. You preach in a place like that and, and you know, people are just like, wow, what, what is going on here? Why? Because they had been taught to be Laodicea. They had been taught to be neither hot nor cold. We're supposed to get along with the culture. We're supposed to get along with each other. The, when you come in there and you start drawing these hard lines, you have a big issue. Fast forward another 20 years and you had the Evangelical and Catholics Together movement, the ECT movement, and some Catholics got together with some Evangelical bigwigs and they wrote up this document and the document basically said, look, quit hassling Catholics about the fine print of the gospel. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ and you've got to stop evangelizing them. That's what the document essentially said. It said that justification by faith alone was fine print. It wasn't the essentials of the gospel. We have the same Jesus. He died on the same cross. He was resurrected. Why are we haggling over whether you can be saved by faith alone or faith plus works? Why are we haggling over that? What are we trying to do? We're trying to blur the line that God draws in the sand. People said, oh, you're trying to be too precise. What are you doing that for? Listen, beloved. Jesus says, notice verse 16, because you are lukewarm. Lukewarm. It is the word for tepid, or what we might translate tepid, and basically it means half-hearted. Because you are half-hearted in your love and loyalty, because you're not loyal devotedly to either. You're not loyal to any antagonism to the gospel because there isn't enough truth being told in the church to do anything antagonistic against it or to be offended by it. And you're not devoted to Christ in any fervency because there's not enough truth in your heart. You just have it on your doctrinal statement. You just make the claim, but I know you that you are half-hearted. You're filled with hypocrisy. This word by, the word, by the way, means warm or soft. They weren't too serious about anything. Jesus says, and so because of it, because of it, I, I want to spew you out of my mouth, spit you out of my mouth. This is a very um, graphic term. It just means I am sick and I'm going to vomit. Maybe, again, referring metaphorically to the water in Laodicea, which tended to be stagnant and lukewarm and full of bacteria, and maybe it made the people of Laodicea sick on a regular basis. Either way, Jesus says, I want to vomit. And it's very personal. Jesus is the Lord of the church. He wants to confess that this is his church, but he's not going to confess that this is his church if it continues down this path. In fact, he's not only not going to confess them as his own, he's going to vomit them out of his mouth, which is to say, reject them outright. The church was lukewarm. What did that mean? It was soft on everything pertaining to life and godliness. It was soft on morals. They were half-hearted, and yet, as you'll see in a minute, they were self-sufficient in it. 
Beloved, think about it. Why does Christ hate that so much? Why does the Lord want it one way or the other? Because there are long-term dangers. How do you spot a lukewarm church so that you can see the dangers? I'll give you a list. Here's how you spot a lukewarm church. First of all, is the truth passed on with precision? Is the truth taught and passed on with precision? Or we might say clarity. Clarity. Do we seek clarity? People sometimes complain, man, the expositions, they go so slow. Listen, slower is better. Because slower is deeper. I'm not talking about surveys. You can do surveys of books. I'm not saying it's sinful to do whole chapters of content. If you happen to be really good at flyovers and overviews, those are great things to do. But generally speaking, the authors of the Scripture had a lot to say in the economy of words inspired by the Spirit of God. They intended for those things to raise up implications. Those implications are essential for our life, and we are to put the truth into your mind so that you understand it. That is the word group for teaching. We are to put it into your mind so that you receive it and understand it, which means we have no right to mess with it. You can tell a lukewarm church when the truth begins to become cloudy. They don't want to be precise. General truth, or as some people sometimes say, well, that's a biblically-based church, or that's faith-based. I heard a Bible verse in there when he preached. He, He must be preaching from the Bible. Not not at all. If he's not expounding the scriptures, if he's not heralding the message of God's word as God wanted it given out, as the king wanted it in its passion, in its clarity, and its implications, and the warnings for not obeying it, if a man doesn't herald that, he's not giving it precisely. That's a church headed for lukewarmness. Secondly, the biblical implications start to get ignored. Oh, yeah, if you start teaching generalities and you don't get precise, the implications of Scripture on your life are going to start to get ignored. I mean, you know how it is. The Word of God is relentless. You open it up in a place like this where we have an appetite for clarity and precision, and you can't ignore the implications. In fact, we love to talk about them. That's why we give you ways to think about how the the truth implicates your life and your heart and how you think and what you believe and what your motives are and what your affections are. We want you to crush the idols with the Word of God. We want you to take how many thoughts captive? General thoughts captive? Every thought. Man does not live by bread alone, but lives by generalities in the Scriptures. That's a poor translation. (laughs) False translation. But by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Look, if we're living by every word, we need to know every word, beloved. A lukewarm church passes on the truth without clarity. The biblical implications start to get ignored. Thirdly, a superficial peace begins to happen with weak and sinful believers. That becomes the norm. A superficial, peaceful relationship with the weak and sinful. You say, well, isn't that a description of all of us? Yes, but we don't have a superficial peace. I'm not getting comfortable with your sinfulness, and you shouldn't get comfortable with mine. We don't ignore that. We help each other. We point it out. 
We don't rush into the church with 10 people to confront. We do Galatians 6.1. We come alongside when we see a trespass. And with gentleness, we come and say, hey, brother, sister, you must deal with this area of your life. You can't come in this church and sit here and, and end up in a superficial peace with weak and sinful people. Or if you're, you have sin in your life you don't want to deal with, you're not going to get comfortable here. You can sit on the fringes for a while, but sooner or later the vortex is going to face off with you. Somebody's going to see you and say, hey, I've seen you around. What's going on in your life? Who are you? Tell me about your testimony. But in a lukewarm church, nah. Superficial peace, it's all on the surface. I remember one person telling me that the church that they were a part of, everybody just loves everybody. So, well, what's being preached right now? Uh, it's some movie series. Well, then everybody loving everyone is not understanding biblical love. Because when you love someone, you give them the truth, right? If someone has cancer, you don't fluff their pillow and give them a free meal at the cafeteria. You bring a doctor in who can tell them they have cancer and tell them what the cure is. That's love. Your two-year-old's running in the street. You don't leave him, oh, I, I want to love my kid. Let him go, oh, he just got hit. You don't do that. The Bible says if you don't control your kids and discipline your kids, you don't love your children. We all know this instinctively. A lukewarm church loves to smooth everything out with superficial peace so that the weak and sinful become the norm. You know what then happens? A lukewarm church, all the convictions about personal holiness as a life pursuit, they start to be viewed as overkill. That's the next one. The convictions about personal holiness start to be viewed as overkill. You can tell a lukewarm church when people don't want to talk about what the Bible says about holy living. And by the way, the hypergrace movement is not immune. The hypergrace movement, I'm convinced, is a movement of people trying to relieve their burdened conscience because of weakness in their life rather than cleanse it through the pursuit of personal holiness. And they're producing a lot of churches that have, they don't have a theological view of grace. It didn't come from theology. They backed into their view through this lukewarm weakness. And then... You can tell a lukewarm church when the preaching morphs into something more palatable, obviously. You know what happens then? The cultural taboos, you know, the, the questionable cultural morals, the worldly influences, they start to ooze into the body life and they're redefined as freedoms, liberties. And then new leaders... You can tell a lukewarm church by the rising up of new leaders with unproven or morally weakened character. The standard of leadership goes out of Scripture and into, well, we're all messy, well, we're all just sinners. I mean, who could be perfect? And suddenly warm bodies start opening the, the copy of the Scriptures they have and they start opinionizing and their character isn't even proven. Or they've already demonstrated moral weakness but yet they're leaders. The next thing that happens is that social gospel efforts begin to consume the time and resources of the church. Social gospel efforts. Why? Because it's easier. 
It's easier to feed the hungry and dig wells and give people cleaner water in their underdeveloped country. It's easier to do that. Let's throw money and missions at that. That's, that's Christian Peace Corps work. Let's do that. It salves the conscience. I'm doing something for Jesus. And, and I might, you know, get a little bit of, you know, Jesus on the cross in there every once in a while. But, but boy, I'm doing a great work. That's, that's how you can tell a lukewarm church is that they begin to emphasize the social gospel more than the polarizing of the the grace of special revelation in the gospel of Christ. And then doctrinal statements start to get reworded to be more inclusive and less definitive. General doctrinal statements. Summaries. We have a summary on our website, but we have a link to the full doctrinal statement. You go to some websites, it's not even a doctrinal statement anymore. It's not even a summary statement. It's, uh, it's a general five principle thing called core values, and those core values, when you read them, you know, you, you could be reading something from your child's, you know, preschool, something from a business meeting. It's all about relationships with people. It's not about truth. You know how you can tell a lukewarm church? Church discipline is abandoned altogether as unloving. Church discipline is abandoned as unloving. Here's another characteristic of lukewarm ministry. When men abdicate their spiritual leadership in the church and various aggressive women begin to clamor for leadership roles, that is a sure sign of a lukewarm church. When men abdicate their role as leaders and women, whether they feel they've had to or not, some aggressive women get out of the bounds of Scripture and begin to clamor for leadership roles, a sure sign that that church is headed for tepid ministry. The sad reality is that that starts to leak into families, and so you can tell a lukewarm church when the families begin promoting more and more positive views of cultural morality. When dads and moms start to become really positive about cultural morality and entertainment. They start shoving their kids into the culture and kids become precocious at young ages and their, their fashion and their entertainment diet is all about the world. This is the sign of a lukewarm ministry. When families are being influenced to move their kids conflict-free into the world at faster and faster paces. You ever notice that, parents, what's happened in some churches? You, you see parents and families from those churches, and by the time their kids are pre-adolescents, they're trying to look and sound like adults, and all they do is endlessly watch videos of the cultural icons promoting all that stuff. These kids' minds aren't ready for that. Their emotions aren't ready for that. They cannot deal with things at that level. They can't navigate the satanic deceptions that are there. And parents are just taking them by the hand and walking them to hell. It's a lukewarm church. And then marriages. What are the couples like in a church? What are the marriages like in a church? Not, not that there isn't conflict and trouble and need for counseling and all that stuff. We, we have all that. We're sinners. We, we get that. But marriages that drift into worldliness on the whole, people who've been under a ministry for a long time, a part of it, clicked in, people who are engaging in the rank-and-file core families of the church, what are their marriages like? Are they worldly? Do they divorce without so much as a wink? 
Do they become narcissistic and neglect their parenting? And are they immersed in worldly entertainment? If that's the family culture of the core people who've been under the ministry, that is a lukewarm church. If enough people still feed off of religious appearances, then the church, sadly, will still claim to be a vibrant place where sinners can find God. This week, I just went through websites just reading what people say about what their church is all about. And uh, for the most part, those churches where they're trying to soften everything it's the same verbiage. You know, you don't have to worry about coming here and feeling out of place. You don't have to worry. What if they're an unbeliever? Shouldn't they feel out of place? You don't have to come here and worry, this is going to be your grandma's church, you know, and all that stuffy old stuff. We even make the people dye their hair that are old. I mean, I don't know, you know, it's, it's like they're embarrassed about anybody who's old. And you come here, you're going to make, your kids are going to go to Disneyland because we've got a whole children's ministry that even, I mean, I look at them, I want to go slide on those slides. It's incredible <laughs> what they're putting up. And you read these things and you think, you know what, there they are bragging about relevant messages, spiritual life, you can really grow here. Enough people still feed off religious appearance, and so the church still claims that that's a place where you can find God. And lukewarm spirituality, on the other hand, makes Jesus sick. He wants to spit him out of their mouth. Notice the smugness of Laodicea. Notice. Because you say, verse 17, I am rich and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. Some have said that because the city is wealthy, they're talking about riches that are financial. And, and while that may be in the back of this, that's essentially not the issue because of the remedy. The remedy clearly is a spiritual remedy. So clearly this is used to speak of moral richness. They are claiming that they have need of no supernatural change, no spiritual uh, boost, no cause for warning, no need to repent. The smugness, their self-perspective was full of pride and smugness and self-sufficiency. They appraised themselves, but it is at odds with their true condition. How blind can you get? The church's opinion of its spiritual status, I love the way Henry Alford puts it, it was a baseless fiction. I love that. It was a baseless fiction. Jesus says, here's what you say. You say you're rich and you've become wealthy and you have need of nothing. 
Man, you want to know a lukewarm church? It's a church that says it doesn't need the warnings and the cautions and the recalibrations and the restarts and the comearounds and the repentances. It doesn't need any of that. We're on cruise control. We are at the top of the chain. And Jesus says, and yet you do not know. Notice the string of terms that you are the opposite. You're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And Notice what he says, you're utterly blind. You don't know it. You do not know it. Here's what you think about yourself. I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth because you say that you don't need anything and I'm telling you, you couldn't be more blind. It's like the Pharisees in John 9 when they said to Jesus, are you trying to say we're spiritually blind? And he said, well, if you knew you were blind, you'd have no sin because you'd turn to me. But because you say that you have eyesight, spiritual eyesight, your sin remains. You're as blind as they come. Notice the string of terms. You're wretched. That's just the word for distressed. I like that. Distressed. You don't think you're, you're in distress spiritually, but you're in distress. You think you're calm and everything's good, but you're not calm. You are comfortable on the outside, yet there is a moral storm raging on the inside. You know, churches that, that say because they're financially raking it in and, and because the buildings are big and they're, they're expanding and, you know, sites here and this there and people are saying this is the greatest place on earth. Listen, be, beware when all the culture speaks well of you, Jesus said. Beware when you think that you are on cruise control as a ministry and Jesus says of your church, you're actually distressed. There's a storm raging. You just don't see it. And he says you're, what does he say here? You're poor. Well, first he says you're miserable. It's the word for pitiable or or pathetic would be a better word. You're actually pathetic. And you're poor. That is to say, morally impoverished. You're lowly. It's the word for lowly. You think you're in a high status morally? You're actually in the lowest status morally. And to top it off, you're self-deceived. You're blind. It wasn't that there, there were things in the life of the church they could not see. It's that they had become blind through their pride and lukewarmness. See, it's, it, it's a self-defeating problem. It feeds itself. It dumps in on itself. It implodes on itself. The more you allow lukewarmness to continue by dumbing the truth down and blurring the lines, the, the less you can see that that's what's happening. It's like how the hunter kills the wolf. He puts the frozen piece of meat on the sharp knife blade, and when the wolf comes and begins to lick the meat, he, he begins to lick it and taste it, and he cuts his tongue, and his tongue bleeds, and as he tastes the blood, he thinks he's tasting the blood of the meat, but he's bleeding to death. That's what happens in a lukewarm church. You hemorrhage to death in your blindness and you end up saying, we don't need anything. And Jesus says, you're self-deceived. 
and you're unprotected, he says. You're naked. That's just the word for exposed. You're particularly vulnerable to destruction. A lukewarm church. And Jesus hates it. I am shocked by verse 18. The Lord of the church says, I advise you. <laughs> it's, it's the word for counsel. Are you kidding me? I am going to counsel you. I mean, the patience of God. I advise you, what? To buy from me. You know, take everything that you think you have, trash it, and come to me and pay the price that I ask, which is himself. Buy it from me. You want riches? Buy gold refined by fire so that you may actually become rich. Buy the precious salvific metal, that which is refined and tested by the holiness of God, my sacrifice. Come purchase from me that. I've already bought it. It's free. It's, it's like come buy wine without cost, Isaiah said in Isaiah 55. Come to the feast I've already paid for. It's yours for the asking, but it must be mine. You must come to me. They're, they're saying, I have need of nothing. He's saying, oh, you, you don't understand. You have need of me. And so I'm counseling you to do that. And I will give you white garments so that you may clothe yourself. Right now, you're exposed. You think you're walking around like the emperor, but the emperor has no clothes. You're exposed and destructive. And I'm telling you, come to me. I will clothe you in white. I will cover your sin and your nakedness and your unprotectedness. And that the shame of your nakedness won't be revealed. Look, you're going to be ashamed when you're spiritually naked in front of the Lord Jesus Christ, the judge of his church. If you have no advocate and you have not repented and you go before the throne of Christ and you say, I have need of nothing. And your shame in being uncovered and blatant in your sin, blind to it, will come out and be exposed and you'll have no way to stop its revealing. And you're blind, he says, but I can give you eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. I'll give you clarity. I'll change your church. Heading to the Philippines this year. My first time there ministering, and, and I think I told you about this beloved pastor that's there, and he got a hold of me after 20 years trying to find me. I don't know, I don't know how that happened, but anyway... 20 years ago, he heard a seminar that I did at a conference on the philosophy of ministry, and he was spent. He didn't want to be in ministry anymore. He was done. He'd been torched by people. He just just had it. And on a, on a last moment, he flew out to the Shepherds Conference, and he came to the seminar by this young kid who was teaching on a biblical philosophy of ministry. That's what I was teaching. And he sat in there, and he told me later, um, when he found uh, a way to contact me, he told me, he just sat in the seminar and wept and thought, I, I've missed it. I've been blind this whole time. I've had no clarity. 
And he said, suddenly, you were opening the scriptures and the principles were just coming off the page over and over again. He said, I took all these notes and I took your notebook and I, I went back to the Philippines and I came back to this little fledgling group which had been fragmented and scattered. And he said, I'm telling you, we've been doing it all wrong. We've had no clarity. We've been blind. And so he took the principles, I mean, mechanically, clinically, one by one, we're going to implement this, we're going to implement this, we're going to implement this. Everything else we've done over here, it's all wrong. We're trashing it. We're throwing it out. No questions asked. And they began to implement it. And here he is, 20-some years later, this year, I'm going to go teach at that church with those people who've been hearing about how that church gained clarity two decades ago. And that's what the Lord promises to give. I'll give you ISAV if you will have a humble heart and just open the word and let it do its work. He says, I'll give you ISAV to anoint your eyes so that you may see. What's the incentive? We'll look at it next time, but notice verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous. There's that fervency. Be hot. Be white hot and repent. You want to be white hot about something? Repent. Why? Because he loves his children. Look, he's not suggesting everybody in the church is believers. In fact, most of them aren't. This is a, this is a call to, to repent or you're going to get vomited out. But clearly there are some believers there, and here's the grace of God. He's saying, look, won't you come and repent? Then you'll be mine. You'll be a legitimate child whom I love and discipline. I'll take care of you like a parent. You'll be a legitimate son and daughter. There's your incentive to not be a lukewarm church. Those whom he loves, he disciplines. I can't believe I'm a legitimate son of God. I, I, I just It staggers me that I would be in his family. It staggers me that he would be a loving parent who comes alongside me. It staggers me that he would want to discipline me because he loves those whom he disciplines and he scourges those whom he's received. I can't believe he receives me. Or that I get to be a part of a church that doesn't want to be lukewarm. Beloved, this is the Lord of his church. Is this not a great challenge and a warning to us? If you see signs of lukewarmness in your own heart, be zealous and repent. If you see signs of lukewarmness in a pocket in our church, be zealous. Come to that pocket of people and help them. And may we never Make the Lord gag because we have become blind and miserable and wretched. Let's pray. Lord, we are gripped by your love for us. Gripped. And we're so sorry for things in our lives that need to change that we have not wanted to change. And all you do is call us with your patient love to be zealous for you, devoted to you, to boil for your glory, to heat up with passionate devotion for your truth. Lord, we'll need courage in the days ahead. Grant us that. We'll need clarity in the days ahead. Grant us understanding and wisdom, diligence. 
We'll need personal holiness in the days ahead. Help us to strive and turn our striving into works of grace. And we need to know this warning to never become neither hot nor cold. Lord, we take it seriously. Help us to know the sobriety of it and the joy of it as a ministry so that we're effective. And it is for your glory, so may our hearts be right when we proclaim that. Truly want your glory. For we ask it in your holy name.